So Joshua took all the land, the hill country and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and this lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Sire as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. And Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. And Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. And there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza and Gath and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. That is the right passage, don't worry. Uh, but let's pray. Father, we come before you now, trusting that you are sovereign, that you are Lord, and that we are not. And that for every security we take in this world, for every place we look for refuge apart from you, that we are actually further away from the security that we need, from the, the covering that we need, from the protection that you provide as our great shepherd. And so, Lord, as we uh, listen to your word and as we sit at your feet, may you be praised. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, when Chuck gave me a call several weeks ago and asked if I'd preach, of course I said, sure, love to, glad to. He then told me what passage I was preaching on, and I cursed his name. Suddenly, I was like a Jewish mother. I was like, what did I do? What did I do to hurt you, Chuck? Why do you have to take this week off? Can't you give me a gospel or something? And what I was joking with him about was just how hard some of this passage seems. One of the things that's also in the background of my mind is just a few verses before the verses that we read, it talks about God's command to do the things we just read that they were doing, which is go, take the northern region, having now conquered the southern region. Go to the north, conquer those strongholds, and it talks about hamstringing the horses and then putting everything to destruction. And then here it says that Joseph, uh, uh, sorry, Joshua devoted them to destruction. And, was, and it's just a try, it's just like a, just an obliteration of every modern sensibility you can ever possibly want. Not only now do we have holy war, we got PETA violations uh, on the horses. I mean, all we need is like that old school hairspray that destroys the ozone. And we have like every problem that modern man cares about uh, on the page. And the, the, the natural instinct is, is what's, what's going on here? Why, why is this so rough in our minds and to, to our modern uh, eyes and ears? When I was teasing Chuck about leaving me with this passage, 
Of course, I hadn't quite reckoned with the fact that Joshua has a number of these passages that invite the question of why war? And Chuck has dealt with them. And Chuck has mentioned in passing lots of ways that we explore this. And, and frankly, you should be proud that we have not preached to Joshua uh, with hand-wringing, apologizing for the Bible as we go through it. Uh, for, the, for most of you, when you read a passage that seems strange, whether it's the names in it or whether it's the story of it like this, you're probably like me and you say, well, I might not understand everything going on here, but I'm, I'm going to be optimistic that there's an explanation that makes sense. But just to be clear, I, I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about this question of war and violence in the Old Testament because it does trouble people. I mean, even the, the most biblically literate, biblically studied person just has to say, that's tough sometimes to understand in its entirety. And even if you are blessed without that crisis at times when you read these stories, people you know in this world will raise this type of thing to you all the time. Oh, you say God is love. What about all that hamstringing of horses stuff? I mean, it seems kind of rude. What do they do? You know, they, they were just kind of hanging out and they got stuck on a chariot. And now you're slaughtering them, it seems. And there's a couple ways to approach this. The first is, of course, as I've already said, you don't make apologies for God. It's one thing to ask a hard question about the scriptures. It's another thing to ask a hard question that is disrespectful to God. Anybody who's been a parent knows the difference between that distinction. A child can ask something hard, or why? Why is this this way? And if they're asking it from a posture of, help me understand, I don't understand, no parent's going to be like, shut up, you know, go away. Well, you might, but that's when you haven't had your coffee. But you're still not going to want to lead in with that. But you know the why question, the how dare you question. And usually in Scripture, when someone gets that talking to by God, as I call it, it's usually when they've crossed over from asking a hard question to asking a question that doubts God. Job is asking hard questions, and then he says, what gives God? And there was a, I'm sorry, where were you when? And all these things come after that. So it's okay to ask hard questions. Why is this here? The other thing, though, is I think you need to understand the perspective of this passage within the context of the, the world of the day. You see, the problem right now is that our talk about violence in this world is very muddled. We call everything genocide. We call everything terrorism and holy war. And by any standard of any of the definitions of those words, that is not, as what's, happen that is not what's happening here in this passage. This is not genocide. This is not ethnic cleansing. This is something different. You see, all the modern examples we have, if you've ever seen like Hotel Rwanda or something like this, of, of ethnic cleansing or attack, it's always, I hate them for whatever reason. Skin color, language, where they come from, they're not us, whatever it is. I hate them and I want to destroy them. That's the modern problem in war and things, right? That's the Holocaust. That's who they are is bad that we need to destroy them off the face of the earth. And usually involved in that is taking everything they have as plunder, as, as treasure for yourself, whether it's their land, their money, all that type of stuff. And it's always done in the modern world, and usually sometimes throughout history, in an effort to make yourself strong. 
So a nation will attack a, a neighboring nation or whatever, and the idea is that you're going to get influence, money, or just take the land and call it yours, impose your religion, all that type of stuff. That's not what's happening here. There is not one shred of evidence in any of this book or in the other places of the conquest of Canaan where it is we need to destroy them because they are evil and we are not, or they are something else that we're not. It's not destroy them so that we finally can bring holiness by our own presence in this land. If you know anything of the story, Israel is not very sanctified. They've just been wandering in the desert and the wilderness for so long because they keep screwing up. They're not sanctified people. And if you know anything about what happens after Joshua, it immediately starts to unravel. They're not doing this because they think of themselves as pure in the sense of their dignity. What's going on here is the establishment of a beachhead. God had created a world, and we had plunged it into sin, and God said, I'm coming for it. I'm going to take it back. And what Joshua is, as we'll see in a minute, is foreshadowing the very work of Christ himself. But that beachhead is from where every nation shall be blessed, even ours, even us. Because frankly, none of y'all, I don't think, are Jewish, and you're those pagans out outside of the land of Canaan that the nations have been blessed and brought into. God's coming for the world, but he starts with a beachhead. And so the instinct of Joshua and the orders that he's given are either make a, a treaty with people, which means they actually agree to serve your God and to become in as foreigners, as they were called, but to be blessed. That's Rahab. Rahab is a pagan woman of, let's just say, low reputation for little ears. That's her role. And she's not only allowed to be brought in, but she becomes the foremother of Jesus himself. This is not this, they, they stink and we're great, we don't like them just for any other reason. Rather, there's always this opportunity to allow people in if they submit to God, if they embrace the things of God. The other thing is that Israel's not supposed to plunder them. They're not supposed to take their stuff. It's basically get out or join. Will you serve God? If not, this is not the place to be. And that can be hard to deal with, but if you have a super hard time with that passage, you have a lot of problems with the majority of the Bible whenever sinners say no to God. It'd be much easier just to be a universalist, frankly. Universalists don't have to deal with the hard question of why some people say no, why some hearts are hardened. And there's not a fundamental answer that's gonna solve it like a Rubik's Cube for you, frankly. This is not a problem of content. This is the reality that sin made us strangers and enemies with God. God says, I'm coming for you, and you need to submit and be my people. And repeatedly, those tribes in Canaan that Joshua is doing war with are like, oh no. We're not only not going to submit, we're not going to go willingly. And they join up with each other, and they repeatedly seek to take Israel out. You see, those Canaanites, those tribes, those groups that Joshua is going to war with, in fact, all those names that I just read of places are strongholds. They're not Bedouin shepherds just kind of, hey, you want to get some Baskin Robbins? Oh, gosh, here comes Israel, you know, this kind of a thing. They're not just hanging out. Rather, they are purposely, proactively against Israel 
And the reason why this is so important is they serve foreign gods, they, serve, they have pagan practices, all types of different variety of things, and the reality is, is God says, this must be made holy and free of that. Now Israel, of course, does not do a great job of that. The folks that get pushed out, their descendants are the Philistines, who make a little bit of trouble later in the Bible. And those Baal prophets and those other foreign religions start to creep back in, do they not? And Israel gets in trouble for that. So Israel isn't going to have a very good track record at this story, at this keep the land holy and free from worshiping false idols. But this is God's beachhead. This is where, this is where God says, from here I will go to all the nations. That's why while we're looking at Joshua and we're looking at this one little plot of land, the entire sermon series we've been going through has been talking about the nations. That's why it's running into our missions conference. It's important to realize that from this beachhead, God will do wonderful things. So to understand what's going on in this passage, you have to begin, again, by realizing that what God is doing is saying, I want you, but for you to be with me, you have to learn from me, you have to submit, and you have to be secure with me. The issue here in this passage is, is related to the horses' verses that I mentioned above, the hamstringing of them. You see, for us, horses are fun. You go to Seamark Ranch, you ride a horse, it's amazing. You should have seen my kids the first time they got to do that. It was like they had been to Disney World three times in one day. I mean, it was just amazing horses are that much fun. But for an ancient world, horses are battle. When you don't have tanks and planes and bullets, occupying the high ground on a horse is about the best thing you can have. Also, you can outrun all those people on their feet. And you can attach a chariot. These are tanks and guns and things that we associate with warfare, horses are. And so when God says, get rid of the people, push them out, and hamstring the horses, He's saying something that is a bit subtle, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. God says basically push those tribes that go to war over anything out. Do not accommodate yourself to them. Do not say, well, okay, a little bit of their false worship. We'll let that like in the 1% area up in the top. No, none of it ought to happen in the land of Canaan. Push them out and then destroy the way that they did life before. You see, it would have been very natural, and in fact, this would have been the, the, the way human history always works. You conquer a land, you get a bunch of stuff like horses or chariots and things, you're like, all right, we're going to add that to the list of our stuff, and now we're going to have this very impressive army, this very impressive uh, military. These things are not easily made, of course. There's no made in China stamp on the chariots. You have to meticulously make these things. Horses actually have to be trained for battle so they don't... Uh, get scared, buck you off, and run away. That would be the worst thing to happen when you're sitting on a horse. The problem here, of course, is like, why the horses? Why would you do anything to them? Well, again, you have to think of the horse as, as I have in my mind, growing up in the 90s, the post-Iraq war, after Desert Storm, when they took all the Iraqi tanks and lined them up in a, on, a, on the street just outside of Baghdad, blown up. They were, un they were just basically scrap metal sitting there, unusable, unfixable, done, dead. That what they're doing to these horses is actually 
not so much because the horses have sinned. They're like, what have I done? You know, kind of a thing. The horses didn't do anything, but rather they are a temptation to Israel. One temptation is for the foreign gods. We're used to hearing about that. This is a temptation towards security based off of my standards, based off of the world's standards. Now, there's some discrepancy in that word hamstringing. If you don't know what hamstringing is, if, if that is literally what the word means, it's a little gruesome. It's basically cutting the hamstring, cutting just above what we would call the ankle of the horse, and it, it hobbles the horse. We, you hear that word a lot today, it hobbles the horse. The actual word in Hebrew could be translated, though, a different way. The word in its origin just means to rip out from the root. That's the word used to say hamstring. Now, I don't know about you, but hamstringing is not ripping anything out. It's slicing things. The other meaning of this word is castration or neutering, as we say of our pets. Now, maybe the original translators of the King James Bible, being all men, did not like that option, so they went with hamstringing instead of castration, and that was okay. It could mean either, but in either case, this is not just willful slaughter of innocent animals. Either this is removing their ability, the animal's ability, to procreate and therefore populate your stables with lots of things to kill people with, or else, short of that, it's hobbling them, hamstringing them, and putting them out to pasture. Letting them just go graze in the grass and live and not drive them into a battle and go into war. You see, that's what God wants from his people. He wants a people that understand that obedience to him is not just saying I love you. Of course it means that. But it's not just I love you. It's also what do I need to be when I'm with you, God? What do I need to learn from? What do I need to submit to? What do I need to give away? And the number one rule in a lot of these cases, a lot of these stories, is security. It would make a lot of sense, again, to have kept all of those things and just said, we'll keep these as a rain check. All right, we'll make a different stable, you know, a couple miles down the road. We won't touch them unless we need them. Um, but they'll be there in case those other armies come marching on us. And then, hey, we got backup. We got insurance plans down the road. God knows that those are lies. God knows that what you'll do is go, well, okay, we'll use it an extra time just this once. And we'll go attack that people. Or we'll go attack ourselves. Or we'll do other types of things. We'll go to war fast. Even if they're not going to war, all these horses, all of this stuff that they were told to destroy or not keep, was the stuff of security. So if you actually look throughout the Bible, there are countless cases where Israel is either committed not to keep horses, not to have lots of horses, that's in the Pentateuch, and a few times in other parts of the Bible, people get in trouble for counting horses. The weirdest kind of way to get in trouble possibly for modern people. How dare you count? No, that's not what's going on. David gets in trouble for this. He goes and has his uh, military, you might say, counted. Why would he do that, you might say? Well, if it's just a horse, that doesn't mean it make any sense to us. But it's a bit like doing the arms race. It's saying, yes, I trust in God, but I also am going to count my horses. I'll trust God to this point, but I'm also going to keep my horses just in case. And David gets in trouble for this. Isaiah 31, if you go look at it, actually challenges Israel. This is much, much later in their history. It says, you want to go down to Egypt and trust in your horses. That must be where they were buying them. 
It says you trust in your chariots. You trust basically in your own strength is the message there. And trusting in your own strength is counter to what Israel was supposed to be. This is the story of Gideon, which is very famous. Gideon has all these men, and he's told to stop and go with a ragtag bunch of people that probably shouldn't win, and they still, because of the Lord's doing, carry the day. God cares about security as much as he cares about your worship, because he knows that when we feel insecure, when we feel unhappy, when we feel like things are, are unraveling, and for whatever reason in your life, that what begins to happen is you don't ask him, you don't call on him, and you don't wait on him. All those things that are just merely insurance things or just merely uh, fr uh, frivolous pleasures in your life, things that bring you some joy, like, oh, I'm not too focused on that, eventually become all that matters. What does that mean? Well, that means that good things can be used in a bad way. Good patterns of your life can become idols. So what status, what security do you need? We all have something. Perhaps one of the most mournful moments I've ever had was, was back in college. An old pastor, he was about 90 at the time, he was retired long ago, he had been on retired for 15 years, but he came to give a sermon at my college and he spent about 20 minutes of a 30 minute sermon going through all of the accolades and um, uh, awards and the promotions that he had received over his 60 years of ministry, 60 years, if you can believe it, or 75, or sorry, 55 at least. Went through all of them, and it was a bunch of stuff. He was a very, very important person. And standing there as a 90-year-old man, he said, every time I got the next one, I suddenly needed something else. I suddenly needed the next one to be secure. Well, well, finally, if I get that one, Finally, if I become a head pastor. Finally, if I get on that board or that committee, this kind of thing. Finally, if I get recognized. Finally, if I publish something. He kept going down the list. And he said, none of them ever gave me security. None of them ever made me happy because they were all about me and feeling good about myself. We can do this with our children. You can spend countless hours, sleepless nights, trying to raise them perfectly, trying to raise them so they don't self-harm and not go to college and ruin their lives and all these things. And then they do it and you think, why do I feel empty? Why does it feel like that wasn't enough? Why do I feel like I did everything but I get no respect? Well, maybe what's going on there is that you needed the security of being a good parent, of being a good mom, being a good dad. It wasn't about the call of the life of a parent, it was about looking good. You can do this in your careers, you can do this with finances, you can do this with all kinds of things. Now the Bible doesn't say you have to just blow everything up in your life and just kind of go wait as a hermit in the desert for the rapture or something, of course no rapture, but whatever. And go out and wait for something, life to come. Well, at the end of time, basically what you're doing is that's the wrong application of this message. The message isn't that these things are not good things. Being a good parent is good. Having security in your finances, just go read Proverbs. All this stuff is fine. The problem is, is why are you doing it? And the telltale sign that there's a problem here is whenever there's any ding in the armor, whenever your boss gives you a bad look, Whenever your kid goes out the door with their hair standing straight up because they didn't get a chance to take a bath in the morning, every time they throw up on something, every time that something goes bad, every time you're married, you get into a fight, and we're like, we're supposed to be perfect. Yeah, right. Uh, but yeah, every time that stuff happens, if your life unravels existentially for you, 
you might be looking to these things for security. Because the security we need is not going to be found in those things. Those things are the things that God gives, gives us because he loves us. But he is our security. Now, this story of Joshua is not just a story of long ago and far away. It's too easy to make it like, well, that was weird. Now we have Jesus. Cool. One of the things that most English readers of the Bible miss, they just, it's, it's okay, but one of the things we, we just don't sort of intuit is who Joshua is. You see, Joshua's name, originally, it can be translated as Joshua, that's fine, but his name is actually Yeshua. His name, in other words, is the same name as Jesus. There's an important connection here that sometimes gets lost between Joshua and Jesus. Now, most of church history, they always said Joshua does in an incomplete human way what Jesus will do in a perfect way. And this is important. That beachhead that Joshua wants to establish, that beachhead that he comes to remove all that idolatry and to get rid of the warfare and to put their trust in God is only piecemeal because as I've already said, immediately Israel starts to go wayward with this stuff. But it is a type, it is a faint echo, a little foreshadowing of what Christ will come to do. You see, that plot of land looks nice and well-developed now. It was basically a dust bowl, more or less, at least according to Florida standards back in that day. But that dust is where Christ's blood spilled. That beachhead is where Christ carried the cross. That beachhead is where he preached and taught and kept coming back to that beachhead and said, from here, go out into all the nations and make disciples. And the church has done that. But you have to realize what Joshua is doing is not something just for Israel. It's something very similar to what you and I are doing. Christ says in his church, I have come. I have expelled those things that tempt you to either idolatry or to false security. Now trust me. And just like Israel, we can do the same thing. We can go sloppy on this. We can say, well, okay, yeah, security in God. Yeah, trust God, whatever. Anyway, I'm going to go focus for the next six days of my week on my own security. Versus a life that says, okay, Lord, you're king. What Joshua did in part, Christ has done in fullness. Now you're king and you're going throughout the earth. What can I do to trust you more? What can I give away? What can I sacrifice from my ego side of things. Not destroy my life, but what am I taking so much pleasure in, so much security in, that I can say, Lord, just take that away. Because I guarantee you, if you struggle with this, and we all do, God will repeatedly put you up in situations where those things you take so much security in suddenly start to look weak and frail, and they fall apart. And he's refining you, and he's testing you, and he's saying, you don't need those things. You don't need those metaphorical horses in your life that you take so much comfort in. All those accolades, all those things, whatever it is, whatever is the most anxiety producing for you, those things are not true. I am. Come, and in a very provocative way, kneel and obey. Obey me. Listen to me. You won't be happy with those things. You won't be comforted with those things. And you certainly won't be secure in the things of this world. But if you obey me and you hold those things lightly, 
basically let's see it this way. If you hold the things of this world that are so good and comforting for you as gifts, not security, then the entire world spins back to the right way up. Maybe you have good kids, maybe you have a good job, maybe you're comforted, maybe you're in your retirement years, maybe you have good health and you know all kinds of friends that do not, but maybe those things are gifts, not your security. Maybe they're things that God has empowered you to use, not things that you get to, to kind of hoard for the sake of your own identity. Christ says, I have the beachhead, go to the, all the ends of the earth. That means if you're not a radical goer, you're a radical sender of people that go. That if you're a radical uh, person and you have to stay at home and you got you know, kids and job and life or you're just tired because you're uh, at that age or whatever it is or you're not well, well, you pray your brains out for those who are going. You find your security, in other words, in what Christ has done from that land that has now come throughout all the earth and continues to need to go further throughout all the earth. What Christ says is trust me, obey me, listen to me. You're going to be tempted by the world just like Israel was. You're going to screw up just like Israel did. You're going to find your satisfaction in the things around you more than God, just like Israel did. But what we have is the completed, finished work of Christ that illuminates everything that we see, touch, every relationship, everything in our life. That what Joshua is doing here, yes, these are sinners. Yes, they seem to bumble and stumble at times. But what they're doing is they're telling us about what Christ will do in completeness and fullness when he comes. And he has come. And now he says, be my people. Obey me, trust me, love me. And find your security, your hope, your comfort in me, he says, not in the things of this world. As the old hymn says, those things will go strangely dim the more you rest in him. Let's pray. Father, it is easy to say that we put our trust and our security in you, but it's another thing to do it. Will you tell us that you have sent your spirit into our hearts to cry Abba, Father, to cry out that we trust you, that you empower us. You're the breath in our lungs. You're the life in our blood. You're the one who sustains us. So, Lord, like the man in the Gospels prays, we believe, but help our unbelief. We want to be secure in you, but always be reminding us that we need you. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.